Well, we left the book of Esther with Esther deciding to heed Mordecai's advice to go into the king, which is against the law, and to plead for the life of her people. And you'll remember she said there in chapter 4, If I perish, I perish. And to prepare, she calls for a three-day fast of all the Jews in the capital city of Susa. So the narrative, as we come here in chapter 5 to the crux of the book, the narrative slows down dramatically. To this point in the book, nine years have gone by. Nine years. The crucial turning over the next two chapters takes place in two days. Chapter 5, our text, occupies less than one day. So we'll make two points. Esther's wisdom in verses 1 through 8, they're on the back inside page of the bulletin. And Haman's folly, verses 9 through 14. So the slowing down of the narrative is the narrator's way of trying to say, hey, go slow with this stuff. It's really important. So first, Esther's wisdom. It's already been 30 days since she's seen the king. She's not seen him since sometime before the decree to slaughter all the Jews was issued. The text says on the third day... Of the three-day fast, the day with echoes of divine deliverance, the third day, Esther has to be wondering now. Will I be led like a lamb to the slaughter? That is the most likely outcome here. She has summoned up her courage. And on this third day, she puts on, the text says, her royal robes. She comes now, not as beauty queen, but as queen. Not merely attractive, but clothed in her royal stature. Literally, the text says, she put her royalty on. She has, as Mordecai suggested, come into the kingdom. Come into her royal station for such a time as this. This is her appointed time. And there's there's an atmosphere in this early part of this chapter. And the whole ambiance inside the palace is intimidating. It's one of royal majesty. Words here related to king or kingdom are used six times in the first verse. So the writer wants us to think of, of the kind of environment Esther enters. Esther comes... And notice the text says, she stands. She does not bow. She's the queen of Persia. She stands in the inner court right in front of the king's hall. This is against the law. And it's done under penalty of death, or at least under the threat of death. Right, and there are reliefs, right, wall paintings from this era which show the Persian king on his throne. And they show him guarded by soldiers with axes who will take your head off 
if you approach in an unauthorized way. So the king is sitting on his royal throne, facing the entrance. He looks out and he sees Esther. Esther, who note, the narrator now calls for the first time Queen Esther. And to her great relief, he was pleased. He was favored with her. He holds out the golden scepter, the sign of his regal authority, right? And thus, for now, he lifts the death sentence. So, just like that, this crucial moment is passed. Esther approaches. She touches the scepter. And the king, he could tell just by looking at her that something wasn't right. He knows the risk that she took to be there, to appear. So he says, what is it? Basically, he says something like, what's up with you, Queen Esther? Again, now the narrator and Xerxes both agree. Esther is queen. She's royalty. And she's rising in her status and in her dignity as queen as this chapter unfolds. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half my kingdom... It will be given to you, he says. Well, that's a pretty, pretty good welcome. It's standard exaggeration, though. It's hyperbole. The king is not giving away half his kingdom. And we'll see shortly, Esther does not take him literally here. But it does mean something like this. I'm in a generous mood. What is it that you want? Try me. It's a marvelous opening, an extraordinary welcome. And you would think, you would think, having escaped the death penalty and having been given this kind of open door for her requests, Esther would lay her petition before the king immediately. The time seems opportune. This is, right? Surprisingly, that's not what happens. Instead, she exercises what I'm calling... Not originally. Strategic patience. Strategic patience. And the tension then mounts in the story. If you're a a foreign policy wonk, you know where that phrase strategic patience comes from. But that's what Esther is exercising here. Now, the narrator, of course, true to form, true to form, does not tell us why she refuses to just be direct, and why she chooses the course of action that she does. Now, some commentators think that this means we shouldn't speculate. I actually think closer to the opposite. I think the narrator's silence is an invitation to ask why. Why this way at this time? By the way, it's interesting. The commentators who say you shouldn't speculate, they just speculate differently at different spots. If you can't speculate, then all you could do was read the narrative. The Jewish commentators, by the way, speculate. The Jews have always read the book as inviting us to ask some questions. So I think a large part of the book, and I've said this before, but it's a good reminder, is meant to produce reflection 
on tactics and on strategy and on timing and on prudence, on human psychology in a political world. A world where it is never stated, but it's assumed that God's providential hand is at at work, but often invisible. What kind of human actions do we take in that world under that kind of hidden God? When do we resist? When do we conform? When do we block? When do we subvert? When do we delay? When do we stand and fight? So the book is pushing back against like a cookie-cutter view of life or of political action, of what it means to be a human agent in the realm of permanent exile. So, Esther, she knows that Xerxes doesn't care much, right? He doesn't care much about the actual substance of the policy to kill the Jews, He barely seemed to pay attention to it. You'll remember, he didn't even ask any questions. He just gave Haman his signet ring. He's not a policy wonk. He's a delegator. Esther knows this. What she needs to do, and this is important to the story here, is she needs to damage Haman's credibility. His standing with the king. She needs another voice, her voice, to be heard over against Haman's voice. And she cannot pit her political experience or her policy credibility over against his. That's not going to work. She also knows that the king is very fickle. He changes a lot. He changes quickly. He's pliable, moldable, manipulatable in the hands of his advisors. So from the way she sees it, there are real drawbacks to just taking up the king's generous offer and present her request. I suggest 90% of the time we would have just presented our request. Apparently, she doesn't think this is the right thing to do. And there are drawbacks. One is her Jewishness, and thus her deceit would be exposed to the king, and she's apparently not quite ready to do that. And second, and don't forget this, Because Esther hasn't. The law cannot be changed anyway. Even if the king were open to her, he would be in a legal bind. He would not be likely to want to lose face. But this is where I think the most important point here is this. If Haman is not involved and Haman is not confronted from the moment of Esther's request... Right, then Haman could change the king's mind in a subsequent meeting from which Esther would be absent. Right? Haman's not present in this scene. She wants him present. Like she, wants a no- she wants to deliver a knockout punch, not a punch where Xerxes can go check with Haman, and then Haman can come with some advisors to Xerxes where, for a, to another meeting where Esther is, has no leverage. So she has a plan. She's thought two or three or four or five or six steps ahead. And the plan is not obvious. It's not direct. She exercises strategic patience. She passes up what seems to be the obvious thing to do, the bold and direct thing to do, for a circuitous indirect thing. She is no longer the tool of Mordecai. She's her own tactician. 
So she says this. If it pleases the king, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him, for the king. Now that's a strange request. It's certainly not the request Mordecai asked her to make. Right? Mordecai said, go in and plead for the lives of our people. We're about to be annihilated. Nor is it the kind of request the king invited her to make when he offered up to half his kingdom. He was in the mood for a grand gesture. The king is in the mood for a grand gesture. And she invites him. Now, remember this. She invites him who she hasn't seen for 30 days or more to a quiet dinner for three. Like your wife does that to you, you start to think, what is that? She's been away for 30 days. She, wants to have, she calls and says, I'd like to have dinner with you and your right-hand man from work tonight. This is called taking the long road home. Right? And... There's no doubt in my mind that she's trying to plant a little bit of suspicion in Xerxes' mind about Haman and about his overall motives. And notice how confident she is in this, her trust that she'll be spared. She invites the king and Haman, the text says, to a banquet today, a banquet I have already prepared, have prepared, past tense. That's how confident she is that this at least initial gambit will work. That means, by the way, that she was overseeing the preparation of a banquet while she was fasting for three days. It's like watching the Food Channel while you're fasting. For three days, she's fasting, and at the end, she has a banquet prepared that she's overseeing. But she knows the king. She wants him relaxed and drinking. And she wants Haman in the same room because she has to drive a wedge between them. You know what else is in play here? In this culture, preparing and serving a meal gives the hostess right, a kind of leverage over the proceedings. Right? You're in a domestic setting where a meal is prepared the woman who prepares that meal and hosts it is exercising a kind of authority that she doesn't have in other settings. So, the king is in. He says, okay, bring Haman at once so that we may do what Esther asks. Don't don't let that slip by. At the end of the last chapter, Esther was issuing commands commands to Mordecai and to all the Jews in Susa, and they were listening to her. Here the king and Haman will do what Esther asks. Her word is gaining authority. She is subtly changing the whole psychological disposition of the king. She's shifting the balance of power in the situation. That's part of the reason for the banquet. So the king and Haman, they go to the banquet that Esther has prepared. And as she wanted, they're drinking. And the king asks her for a second time at this banquet. Surely he's thinking, this banquet is not what you risk death for. What is your petition, even up to half their kingdom, it will be granted. 
And here we have to ask something. Does Esther falter here? Does she, does she shrink back? Does she hesitate or stammer? Does she decide, she change her mind and decide she's not willing to take the risk? It could look like she lost her nerve. Because shockingly, the best idea she seems to have at this point is, hey, let's have a second banquet tomorrow. Let's have a second banquet tomorrow? Now, this is extremely dangerous, right? She risks spoiling the king's generous mood. And she's giving occasion for even someone as thick as Haman to figure out what might be happening. Certainly, the king could be irritated. He's now asked her twice. She's willing to risk the backlash. And you can see that she knows, she knows she is on very, very, very thin ice here. Because she puts the request forward with great flourish and great meekness. You know know what we call what she does here? Pandering. She panders to the king because the king likes to be pandered to. She mentions that the king is king four times. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and my request, then let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet, and lest lest he thinks that she's playing with him, she concludes, and I will answer the king's question. I promise I will give you, king, 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 your answer tomorrow. She's basically now taking an oath. If you just give me one more banquet, I will answer the question tomorrow. Now, I don't know whether she lost her nerve, whether this was an ad hoc plan in the spur of the moment or not. But she's certainly done something quite craftily here. She's restrained the impulsiveness of the king with some suspense. And this is essentially to prepare the king for a yes answer in advance. Right? These banquets are semi-public. You have Haman there. You have servants there. You have some guards there. And the king has already twice, twice said he would grant Esther's request in front of witnesses. By tomorrow's banquet, it will be three times. So psychologically, it's going to be very difficult for the king to show up for this banquet, ask Esther for the third time, promise Esther that he will grant her request, and then say no. That's Esther's wisdom. That's her strategic patience. To Mordecai's public political pressure, she adds quiet diplomacy. Second is Haman's folly. He goes out in verse 9, happy and in high spirits. The effect of social social prestige and alcohol. And And in his joy... Haman is a fool. Mordecai's back at the gate working. Mordecai ups the ante here. Not only does Mordecai refuse to bow anymore, he refuses to even stand. He refuses to show even any lesser sign of respect for Haman. So this decree of annihilation has not lessened Mordecai's contempt. And for, you know, from Haman's point of view, Mordecai is an uncontrolled public menace. 
He's given Haman post-banquet indigestion. Now remember, for men like Haman, public respect is an idol. It's an idol for Haman. And so what happens again? Common in the book, he's enraged. Disproportionate anger. Rage is very often a sign that an idol is threatened. He's enraged. But he restrains himself. He goes home. He calls together some friends and his wife, Zeresh. And then you get this textbook example of how pride goes before destruction. It's in verse 11. We're told, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king honored and elevated him. I mean, you talk about a narcissistic, self-absorbed politician. You know what this guy never says when he gets home? How was your day? This guy has an evening gathering with his wife and friends just to boast. How many times do you think they had to listen to how rich he is? I'm rich. I'm really, 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 really rich. Like they wouldn't know how rich he was. You know, besides being a monster, Haman is an overbearing bore. Does this guy think that his own wife does not know how many sons he has? I mean, think of this. His own wife and friends don't know about all the promotions he's had at work. This is an epic level of juvenile self-absorption. Epic. You get a window into the hollowness of this creature, Haman. And as such, he's blind to the egotism. The egotism blinds him to what's going on. He says, and that's not all. Not only am I rich, not only do I have lots of sons, not only have I been incredibly successful in my political career, not only that, he says, I'm the only person that Queen Esther is inviting to the banquet for the king, and she's invited me to another banquet tomorrow. Right? He should be thinking, why am I the third wheel in this banquet? Right? Why am I the third wheel at this banquet? Notice even Haman is calling her Queen Esther at this point. None of this gives me satisfaction, he says, though, while I see that Jew. There's that Amalekite anti-Semitism again. That Jew sitting at the king's gate. His highs are way too high. His lows are way too low. He has no emotional order or proportion, Haman. Surrounds himself with friends who are sycophants because his wife and his little uh, cadre there of counselors, they say, here's how we can fix your little uh, anti-Semitic problem with the Jew in the gate. Why don't you construct a ludicrously high 75-foot-tall pole to impale Mordecai on? It'd be much higher than the actual palace itself, 75-foot high. It's an image, literarily speaking, it's an image of Haman's absurdly inflated 
self-important ego. Of course, he doesn't see it like that way. He thinks this is a great idea. Of course, it's horrific counsel. But it's not about mortifying, putting to death his idolatry. It's about feeding his idolatry. It's about broadcasting to the empire that resistance to Haman, the prime minister, would be futile. And apparently, this is urgent. It can't wait for the decree of annihilation. That's 11 months away. Apparently, this thing has to be set up tonight, now, so the king can sentence Mordecai to death on it in the morning. And then his wife and friends say, then you can go to the banquet and enjoy yourself. A simple political assassination, and you're on your way to an enjoyable banquet. No, like Adam and Eve, they were told they could eat from every tree except one. Haman cannot live with adulation from all subjects except one. There are people like this. People who need to be universally liked and get stuck on the fact that 17 people love them but one person doesn't like them. He obsesses over the lone dissenter. So he's delighted by the suggestion. He sets the poll up. And there's another deep irony here. The original decree issued at the beginning of the book was so that every man could rule his household. And here the prime minister is being ruled and governed by the foolish counsel of his wife and his friends. But notice what this has done. It looks then like Esther's plan is exposed. By tomorrow night's banquet, Mordecai may be dead. Maybe asking for the second banquet was not such a good idea. You had the open door, you deferred, now your stepfather is targeted for political assassination this very night. Mordecai's public protests... Esther's quiet diplomacy, they don't look like such a good match now. So either the night is going to do its work, and what a night this will be. We will look at it, Lord willing, next week in chapter 6. Either the night's going to do its work, or Esther's going to have to confront Haman with, with the backing of the king and the full power of the empire still in Haman's hands and possibly an already executed stepfather. So I'm going to conclude with three takeaways here. I'm going to call them prayer, (coughs) providence, and patience. So what does the text say to us today? Well, when we face crises, we should imitate Esther here. Remember what she does. She slows down. We should slow down. And she calls for a fast. She waits on the Lord. We should fast. We should pray. We should repent. We must not forget the three days before this scene. They're very important days. It doesn't say that they prayed. It's true, and I've spoken about that. But they most likely prayed. And we certainly should pray. Because this is a key part of trusting the Lord with all of your heart and not leaning on your own understanding. 
we're all prone to just lean on our own understanding. But in all our ways, acknowledge him that he might direct our paths. Strategic patience means, in Paul's words, we're to be anxious for nothing. We're to be anxious for nothing. But with prayer and supplication, make our requests known to God. Wait for the Lord. Look to him to bring some clarity and guidance. The second thing besides praying is providence. Of course, we say this almost every week on Esther, but it's there. When we face unpredictable or proud or volatile, difficult people, we should remember Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Right? That's the doctrine of God's sovereignty over all men and all their actions. And if it's true of kings, right, it's true of the difficult people in our lives who need their hearts softened or opened or enlightened or comforted. We trust a God who does have an open-door policy, right? who we know is going to hold the golden scepter out to us because of what Jesus Christ has done. And that God is doing his own subtle nudging and directing, unbeknownst to you or me or anyone else, down to this hour. He's doing it in this scene in Esther's over this dark, threatening night. Finally, just a, just a word about strategic patience. It's a virtue. It can never replace courage. But remember, in going into the king, Esther has shown a kind of courage. She's shown a kind of dare to be a Daniel courage. A few weeks ago, I said, we weren't ready for a hymn called Dare to be an Esther. Well, we're ready for that now. If you want to keep the alliteration, it should probably be like engaged to be an Esther. But there's a hymn out there for someone who wants to write it. But courage is crucial. right? But a key component in becoming a sage, which is what Esther is becoming, that is a wizened person, a key component is learning the arts of indirection and of subtlety and of meekness with people, and of strategic patience, of playing the long game, of mastering the art of political tactics, of not being a bull in a china shop, of a certain kind of delicacy. Anyone who's made a life in diplomacy can tell you this. Now, as I said before, in Esther and Mordecai, one can argue about every choice they make. If you live in the kind of world they live in, or you live in this world, to live is to live with ambiguity as to exactly what to do. Right? Imagine Esther thinking this way. Should I go straight to the request? The king has offered. Maybe a banquet first. Two banquets? Two banquets? she She chose the third option. But... It meant she, she struggled through the ambiguity of the possibilities. You know, we see all three things here. Prayer, providence, and strategic patience. You know where we see them all perfectly integrated is in the life of Jesus Christ. Right? He prayed fervently and frequently and fasted, especially at the crucial points in his life. He did this. The Son of God in your flesh did this. 
He had recourse to prayer before he chose the 12 in the garden and at many other points. He trusted the hidden providence of his father to turn the hearts of the kings who were over him to fulfill the divine purpose for which he was sent. He has no political authority. He trusts the providence of God. First Peter says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And you know what else Jesus did repeatedly? Is he repeatedly showed strategic patience. Right, we've been going through John's gospel before Esther. And I hope to finish John's gospel up later in Lent and around Easter time. But what does Jesus repeatedly say? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It is not yet my hour. Right? He's, that's strategic patience. That's waiting for the right time. How about this? I have many things to tell you. But you cannot bear them now. That's strategic patience. How about hiding his identity as Messiah until virtually the last week of his ministry on earth? That's strategic patience. How about sometimes confronting the authorities, sometimes eluding the authorities? That's strategic patience. How about sometimes teaching to clarify and other times teaching to completely baffle and mystify his audience? Jesus' whole life is an exercise in courage and strategic patience. Right? If we're just on the courage side of this, we're probably going to lack tact and skill and wisdom. If we're just on the strategic patience side of this, it may be that we lack some courage and we're just always wanting to defer. Jesus has courage and strategic patience. And so should we in him. And it's through his public gallows as an enemy of the state that he brings about this reversal from the death threat, from condemnation to life. Jesus brings about the reversal of which this reversal in the book of Esther is just a foretaste. This reversal from condemnation to deliverance in Esther will be brought about by the gallows that Jesus is crucified on where he will move you from condemnation and certain death to deliverance and life. He died the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, the wise for the fools, the patient for the impatient, that he might bring you unmolested, touching the scepter of his kingdom, which he has purchased by his own body, that it might be extended to you so that you might have access to the Father's kingly throne room. So glory be to Christ, the courageous Savior and the patient sage. Amen.